Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Christine Schaffner, and welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Bob Stickold. Dr. Stickold is a cognitive neuroscientist and professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's published over 100 scientific papers on sleep and dreams. Dr. Bob Stickold is a co-author of the book, One Brain's Dream, written by Tony Zadra and himself. It was just published in January of 2021. And as I'm deepening my understanding and exploration of sleep, uh, that was really a catalyst through the product that Dr. Ruggiero created with me, which is a topical GABA with chondroitin sulfate called Insomnium. I'm really learning about each stage of sleep and the benefits of not only deep and REM sleep, but also the benefits of dreaming. So I asked Dr. Stickle to educate us so we can uh, really understand what is happening to the brain while we dream. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Bob. It's really an honor to have you here. Well, I'm delighted to get a chance to talk with you and through you to uh, those who listen to your podcast. Thank you so much. And you know, sleep has been on my brain. It's been on my brain for a long time, being a naturopathic physician and educating people about the benefits of sleep. But my knowledge is going deeper as I look at the all the things that happen in the body and in the brain during sleep. And during my research, I came across your book and you all have a very interesting and evolved model of looking at the brain, especially the brain while we're dreaming. And so we're going to dive into all your insight, but, you know, just to start, I mean, I think people are still learning, like, why do we really need to sleep and what are the benefits of sleep? Well, thank you. That's a wonderful question. And it's, you know, it's a question that's been around for thousands of years and very strangely without any good answers. So if you think about basic you know, human drives and needs, you know, eating, drinking, sex for procreation, we, we understood the biological function of these behaviors thousands of years ago. I mean, we eat because we feel hungry. We drink because we feel thirsty. We engage in sex because we feel like we want to, but we understand that they serve a deeper biological function. And those functions have been known for thousands of years. But when it comes to sleep, I mean, as recently as the turn of the century in, in 1999, I think Alan Hobson, a sleep researcher, was famously quoted as saying the only known function of sleep is to cure sleepiness, which is, is a, was a very sad state of affairs. But things have really grown over the last couple of decades. So let me tell you some of the things we know now. Um, sleep is important for endocrine function. If we take subjects and put them on four hours of sleep a night for a week, they start looking pre-diabetic. Their insulin regulation goes totally off. And our epidemic of obesity in this country might in part be actually a consequence of an epidemic of sleep restriction as we stay up later on screens and whatnot. Endocrine function, immune function too. If you give someone an immunization against the flu, which by the way is closely related to COVID, and if you sleep deprive them the night after you immunize them, they end up producing only half as much antibody against the flu. And that's probably going to be true for COVID as well. So if you get your COVID vaccine, you want to make sure you get sleep the next night, or you might be losing the majority of the benefit that that vaccination could give you. Sleep seems to be involved in cleaning out poisons from our circulatory, not our circulatory system, from our brain. The glymphatic system, which is involved in this, has pulses of activity during slow wave sleep that lead to the removal 
of these chemicals, including chemicals known to be involved in the development of Alzheimer's, people who sleep less, animals who are deprived of sleep, end up having higher levels of these Alzheimer compounds in their brain. So um, that's another function that sleep serves. The one I have focused on mostly, and I wouldn't argue is probably the one that led to the original evolution of sleep, is the processing of our memories. This is the only function that clearly can't happen if we're awake. You know, our brain is is not like a, a VCR. You know, the old VCRs, they could record one channel while putting a second channel up on the screen. We can't do that. If we're talking to someone, what they say makes us think of something else. You see this in conversations all the time. The person sort of looks off to the side and then they come back and say, I'm sorry, what are you, I'm sorry, I, we can't do that. So if we want to continue to process our memories after we form them, we have to go offline. We have to take our brain and disconnect it from sensory input from the outside world and even to a certain extent from our intentional thoughts on other topics. And we do that by sleeping. Sleeping is a time when the brain goes offline. And it turns out that for every couple of hours we spend awake taking in new information from the world around us, we need to go offline for an hour to give our brain a chance to figure out what it means. So awake for 16 hours, sleep for eight hours. And it's a nasty, nasty task. You know, my first computer was an Apple II Plus. (laughs) It came with 48K of memory, 48,000 bytes, as opposed to the millions and billions of bytes of memory that we have in our computers now. And it could memorize anything I wanted. I could type on the keyboard and it would memorize it. I could speak into a microphone and it would record it. I could scan a photograph and it would dutifully encode it in its memory and save it. But it had no clue what any of it meant. In fact, it's only in the last half dozen years that computers have become powerful enough and sophisticated enough to start to actually decode the information that we give it and describe what it means. And so our brain needs time of its own to figure out the meaning of the information we take in during the day. Mm -hmm. So while we sleep, our brain is taking some of our memories and strengthening them. It's taking other memories and stabilizing them so they won't be forgotten. It's taking emotional memories and treating them specially holding on to the core of the emotional event, but allowing the irrelevant details to be forgotten. At the same time, it's that it's strengthening that core memory of the emotional experience. It's also reducing our waking response, our emotional response to it when we remember it. It can take information that comes in in quantities and can discover patterns in it. It can get, you know, lots of information about a subject and find patterns that we can't find when we're awake. And all of that, all of that is what the brain's doing while we sleep. Wow, it's doing a lot. And we can all probably attest to how poorly we feel after, you know, either, you know, a few nights or a long string of sleepless nights. And you mentioned already, I think, you know, as Americans, you know, we value being productive and we're, you know, very, you know, we have very full lives and very full days that sleep is one of the things that usually 
is that if anything's going to take a hit, it's usually hours of sleep. And I think I read somewhere like the average American now is sleeping 6.8 hours a day. You know, um, am I correct? Is that the research you've seen around? That's about the right number. And this willingness to give up sleep, I also give the example of, you know, I imagine that the coach of some football team having players say, you know, we're, we're just too stressed out. We're spending too much time practicing. We need more time to ourselves. So we're going to stop eating dinner. (laughs) right i mean you can't stop eating dinner you have to eat dinner Uh you need that nutrition you need that energy but we say i'll just give up an hour or two of sleep Uh like like it was nothing that you can just give it away and we can't Uh we really can't Uh we've had studies that show you know for some particular types of learning that if you only get six hours of sleep you get no benefit wow wow Um, others require less Others might require more, but uh, it's absolutely crucial. And the most scary part is that that processing has to happen the night after we take in the new information. If we have subjects that we keep awake one night and let them get all the sleep they want, maybe eight or even 10 hours the next night because they're so sleep deprived, they show no benefit from that sleep. It's too late. The brain has a window of about 24 hours within which You have to get sleep if you want to benefit uh, for a given piece of information that you learn. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, for babies, Mm -hmm. that window is smaller, which is part of the reason they need to nap. They can't. We can learn something in the morning and wait till night to 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 fall asleep and work on it. But with babies, if you teach a baby something and they don't get their nap, that night is too late for them to benefit. That I have a three-year-old and she still, thank goodness, takes naps. And so that, you know, I, I think about, oh, you know, all the reasons why she's sleeping. And I think about growing and all these things. But yeah, I hadn't thought about, you know, their world is so new, right? So how they're, you know, taking in and, you know, organizing all this information that they need sleep to do yeah. that. And, and of course, mm-hmm. infants are, are processing emotional memory too. I mean, there's, you have a three-year-old, you know this. There's no more fearful phone call than the one that says, hi, I'm bringing Billy over for his play date. And by the way, he didn't nap. Yeah. <laughs> right. The emotional dysregulation yeah. Yeah. that comes when a child, even three years old, doesn't get their nap is, is terrifying to watch. And we all know that piece of it, but we don't ask the obvious question, which is what happens while they're sleeping mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that allows them to maintain um, self-regulation for the whole rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very in touch when Anne-Marie does not have a nap, you know, that her, yeah. <laughs> she's, a, she's a great kid, so, but it's amazing how, yeah, she can't regulate as well, right? So she's just more easily irritated or just can't cope or, you know, just cries at things she would never have cried at, you know? So we we have that very, you know, I have that very um, close contact yes. <laughs> what a um, lack of sleep looks like. And, you know, as you were talking too with the consolidation of, you know, memory and learning, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, way back when in school, right? You know, when we're all doing all-nighters and, you know, trying to cram and, you know, we're really not doing, you know, it's better just to close the book and, you know, go to bed, you know, um, and just consolidate what you did learn, you know, so that, that's yeah. really interesting. So we've talked about all these like benefits of sleep and we haven't touched on, well, maybe, you know, I want to get into obviously your area of expertise, which is vast, but around dreaming and what's happening to the brain and dreaming. But for people who are new to just understanding sleep in these different phases, can you just maybe give us a real high overview of like, you know, the sure. phases of sleep? Sure. So 
from our perspective as, as people, you know, just regular people, we go to bed, we fall asleep, we wake up a few times, fall back asleep, get up in the morning, and it feels like the sleep is one undifferentiated phenomenon. And it might even feel like the brain is just shut off for that time. But first of all, it hasn't shut off. It's as active during sleep as it is during wake. But it's also not undifferentiated. We go through a basic cycle that's known as the REM cycle, named after rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, named after the band, Mm -hmm. REM. And that period is about 90 minutes long. So every 90 minutes we go through an hour or so, maybe more of non-REM sleep where there are no rapid eye movements. And then we, the sleep lightens up and we enter a period of REM sleep. And then we go back down into non-REM and about an hour later, we come back up into REM sleep. And the whole cycle is 90 minutes long. So we get about five cycles in a night, in and out of REM sleep. And interestingly, the first half of the night is really heavy on the non-REM sleep. And the second half, is heavy on the REM sleep. And the non-REM sleep is divided into three stages now. We call them very creatively non-REM one, two, and three. (laughs) And non-REM three uh, is the deepest stage of sleep. And so we'll come down, we'll fall asleep, and we'll go through one and two and down into three, and then we'll come back up to two, and then into REM, and then back to two and three, and two and REM. By the second half of the night, we're not having hardly any of that deep stage three sleep, but getting a lot more REM sleep. Mm-hmm. And then when people are having, there are a lot of people, right, who have poor sleep in our country and they have, you know, either trouble falling asleep or interrupted sleep. Do they miss the opportunity? Like, do you have to start the cycle from start, you know, the N1 to get into REM or can you kind of go in and out of it just as people kind of think about their their night of sleep? So there's two types of, well, there's multiple types of interruptions of sleep, but there's the ones like I have, which mm-hmm. is the bathroom runs in yeah. the middle of the night. Yeah. And when you're waking up on your own like that, it tends to happen at the end of your REM period. Oh, That's the time when you most easily wake up and then go to the bathroom, you come back, you go back to sleep and you're right where you should be going to stage one and two and three of non-REM and back up and into your next REM period. If you've got a baby, mm-hmm. you wake up whenever she decides she wants you to wake up. Right. And that gets pretty much scattered throughout your sleep cycle. If you're awoken from a REM cycle, especially if you're up for five minutes afterwards, as opposed to your partner snores loudly for 10 seconds or drops something as he gets out of bed or a car horn goes and you just go right back to sleep then you'll go right back into that REM period. But if you're up for five minutes or more, you basically abort that REM period. Mm-hmm. And then you're back at going down into two and three and back up, and it'll be another hour before you hit REM again. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the danger of it. But usually that's not what's happening. I mean, with, with new mothers and the occasional father who chooses to help, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's what they're having. And it can be seriously disruptive of the amount of REM sleep they get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I know what that feels like. And if all <laughs> the baby could time, right, waking up after the end of that REM cycle, right? We got to figure that out, right? So then, you know, REM, um, you know, rapid eye movement is the time where dreaming is most, you know, the brain is dreaming, right? And so 
your your book, One Brain's Dream, obviously you've been studying dreaming and what happens in dreaming. It is true though, correct me if I'm wrong though, REM is when we sleep the most, but we do have some, um, or when we dream the most, but we do have some dreaming in other stages of sleep. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah you're probably, you know, you get about two hours out of an eight hour night of REM sleep, mm-hmm. but you're probably dreaming all total at least six hours of the night. Mm-hmm. It's really strange to say that because people sort of look at me and they say, I don't dream that much (laughs) because, of course, we only know that we're dreaming or have been dreaming if we wake up out of a dream. And then usually we can, it seems, only remember back about five to 15 minutes at the most, Mm -hmm. maybe not even that much time of, of dreaming that you can recall when you wake up. So the vast majority of your dreaming probably 90% of your dreaming, you're never aware of in wakefulness. You're aware of it while it's happening, but it doesn't form memories the way your daytime activities do. So some people will say to me, Bob, how come I never dream? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, it's not that you don't dream, it's that you don't remember them. And the reason you don't remember them is you fall asleep quickly, you sleep soundly through the night, and you wake up in the morning with an alarm clock. Mm. And more than half the time they say, how do you know that? How did you know that? I said, because if you fall asleep quickly, then you don't notice those dreams that happen at sleep onset. They're called hypnagogic or sleep onset dreams, little short dreams um, that happen as we're falling asleep. And if you don't wake up during the night, you don't have the opportunity to remember any of the dreaming that happens then. And if you wake up in the morning with an alarm clock, it so distracts you into your waking life that it literally wipes the memory of any dreaming you were doing before you were falling asleep from your mind. So probably almost all of your listeners and viewers um, are dreaming for three quarters of their night or more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you're right that REM sleep is when the dreams are most emotional, most complex, most bizarre. The narratives are stronger. The vividness, the visual vividness of the dreams is greater. So there, you know, your dreams are the most dreamy mm-hmm. when, when you're in REM sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then, um, Bob, so why, you know, in your research, why do our brains need to dream? I mean, do we need dreaming as part of this uh, biological, you know, effect of sleep to make all of these things that you shared in the beginning of sleep effective for our bodies and our physiology? You know, why, why are we dreaming? Well, let me answer the question first, do we need to dream? Because that's that's actually a tricky question. We probably don't need, Mm -hmm. in quotes here, any of the benefits of sleep. I mean, we might get sort of pre-diabetic. We might get sick more. I sometimes laugh and tell people my frustration in life is all that I've done is help prove that my mother is right. (laughs) That If you don't get enough sleep, you're going to end up fat, sick, and stupid. But... (laughs) But, you know, you, don't, you, you can survive without those, right? I mean, you can't go 10 minutes without breathing. Right. You can't go a week without drinking any fluids. You can't go six months without eating anything. You will die. Mm-hmm. Now, it appears that if you go more than a month or so, or maybe two months without sleeping, you also die. But that's not something any of us are capable of making ourselves do. That's only in some very bizarre neurologic disorders that that happens. So it's not that we need it. It's that we need it to to lead the happy, productive lives that we want to. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, we need to sleep. 
and we need to dream. So what is dreaming doing for us? That's, that's the question. And in our book, When Brains Dream, we come up with this model that we've named Next Up. And Next Up is an acronym for Network Exploration to Understand Possibilities. It's part of that whole process of memory and enhancement during our sleep. But most of the things I spoke about earlier, most of the work on memory that our brain does while we sleep has to do with like answering questions or stabilizing and strengthening things that we've learned so that we don't forget them or to extract identifiable patterns that are present information we've taken in. What dreaming is doing is something much more complex and much more sophisticated. It's asking the question, so what? Excuse me, I have a teenager. It's the last thing I want to hear from that. You know, <laughs> who cares? So what? But that's really the question about all the information that we take in and everything that we learned. What are the, you're taking in information all day long. Even if you're just walking along the street, you're seeing people, you're seeing faces, you're seeing their clothing, you're noticing trees and plants, you're crossing streets and noticing traffic. And all of this you're encoding into your brain as memories. And then the brain has to decide, okay, don't need that, don't need that. And that's kind of easy. What's hard is, okay, so wait, what does this mean? Had a conversation with a good friend and he said, you're going to be on this podcast tonight, huh? I mm-hmm. said, yeah. And he said, good luck and laughed and walked away. <laughs> what was that about? Right? We have all these things that happen during the day that are unfinished. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, we're working on writing something and we haven't finished it. We're, you're editing a podcast and... It's running along. You're going to have to cut. You're not quite sure what to cut. You're not going to do it tonight. You're going to do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And your brain goes to sleep and it says, okay, how are we going to deal with all of these unanswered questions? What, what a psychologist would call current concerns. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm worried about my relationship with my wife, with my son, with my boss, with my neighbor. You know, I'm worried about this project and that project and the other one. And they're all sort of hanging around in the back of my mind. That's the phrase we use. Now, it's interesting when you go to sleep, as you're lying there in bed, trying to fall asleep, all of these concerns go flashing through your mind again, right? That's sort of super speed, and sometimes it gets stuck on one for a while. But they just go flitting through. And what we think is happening is the brain is literally recontacting all of those concerns to decide which ones am I going to work on tonight. Mm. And when our dreaming brain is working on it, it's trying to ask the question, what other information do I have stored away that might be useful? And what information in particular do I have that might be useful that I would never think of during the day? So I get a job offer. It's a fantastic job. It's in a really lousy location. And the question is, do I try to convince my wife that we move the family to this new place because it'd be such an incredible job. And, you know, we tend to make this list, right? Reasons to go, reasons to stay. And the list gets longer and longer and it never really helps us. Instead, we say, what do we say? We say, you got to sleep on it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we, we know that as a culture that somehow that tends to work. Mm-hmm. And when we're dreaming, our brain takes 
some concern, and maybe it's that one for a while, and looks for weakly associated memories, ones that you would never notice when you're awake, like the comment your mother made to you about how your father would never be able to take it if you moved far away. Mm -hmm. And you had heard that 10 years ago, and you would put it out of your mind, and you, you, you hardly even remember it. But there you are sleeping, and your brain says, oh, look what I found. Maybe that's something that's relevant. So then the brain has to decide. It's a funny thing. It has to decide, okay, I found this associated memory. It's associated this way or that way. Is it really useful? And it turns out that the way the brain does that testing, whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, is to build a what-if story. I mean, if you're awake and thinking about something like that, you imagine what would happen if you call your mother and say, you know what, we're moving. And you sort of play that all through and you, you watch your own emotional reaction to that story that you're constructing. And that emotional reaction impacts how you think about and how you decide about making that move, how to, to actually carry that out, that action. Um, in your dreaming, you do the same thing. You take that new association, you build it into a narrative. We call it a dream. Mm. The brain plays it for us. We, as a dream character, participate in it, and we react to it emotionally. And the brain's looking at those reactions. And if they're strong enough, the brain says, okay, I don't know if this is really useful, but it feels potentially useful. And it literally strengthens the connections between those two memories. Mm. So that the next day, when I'm talking with Debbie, my wife, about maybe taking this new job, for some reason that I have no idea why, I say, my dad's not going to like this. Mm. And I don't even know why I thought of that. Mm -hmm. But this connection has been strengthened during the dream. And that connection is now stronger the next morning as well. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the only way the brain can do this sort of planning is by imagining. And to imagine, you have to do it in consciousness. So if you're going to do it during sleep, you actually have to dream. It's not that the dream is something of a byproduct mm. that, you know, the brain is doing these calculations and whatever, you know, the mind happens to be able to see some of it. That conscious experiencing of it and that emotional reaction, those feelings that you feel as the dream character are critical for that evaluation of the usefulness of the connection. Mm -hmm. So we have to dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I love that the part of your acronym opens us up to possibilities and potentials, right? We're not able to, you know, think about these, digest and comprehend potentially possibilities in our future selves, right? Right. And it's not trying to answer the question. Mm -hmm. At the end of the dream, the brain hasn't said, okay, Bob, you're moving. Right. It's just saying, okay, look, you know, it's like a good teacher mm -hmm. helping students see connections, see possibilities, and not saying to the student, that's right, that's the important connection. But to say, well, think about that. How does that feel to you? Does that feel like it's important or not? And, and so it, it's, it's allowing our waking brain and mind to make the final decisions, but now with this new information that we got from sleeping. You mentioned patients with or, or clients or people you deal with who have PTSD or other trauma disorders. 
And one of the hallmarks of PTSD is that they have these dreams, which are close to vertical replays of the trauma memory. So whereas you or I, if we have some traumatic event happen, think 9-11, think uh, Challenger explosion, or, or think failing some major exam, we would tend to get over that in a week or so, or a few weeks, because our brain is processing that information every night. And it does that by finding these associations and, and learning how to understand the traumatic event in light of other things that have happened in our past, things we could imagine happening in the future, what we know from memories of other people's experiences. The brain is integrating all that information for us. And you see that in our dreams. We don't dream about the planes flying into the World Trade Center. We dream about being on an airplane and feeling scared. We dream about being in a tall building and not wanting to look out the windows. We, we dream things that are related to it. Or maybe we just dream about, you know, boat that's getting hit by a tidal wave or something. It's, it's sort of these bizarre related events that we dream about. But people with PTSD can't do that. And in fact, in some ways, that might be why their traumas develop into PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, and we talk about this at some length in, in our book. And it might be that the brain, because this kind of emotional processing normally happens in REM sleep, mm -hmm. and to get into a full REM state, one of the things the brain has to do is shut off the release of a neurotransmitter called noradrenaline in the brain, which is related to adrenaline. And noradrenaline is something the brain uses to keep us focused and alert. And normally when we go into room sleep, the brain completely shuts off the release of it. But people with PTSD never shut it off. They're hypervigilant and their brain says, uh -uh, there's no way even while we're asleep that we're going to shut that down. And so two effects of that are, first of all, they don't enter full REM sleep. Second of all, they can't really find those sort of more distant, weaker associations because you have to shut off noradrenaline release to allow your brain to reach those more distant associations. And so you end up just replaying the memory over and over again. And if you talk to therapists, that's the worst thing you can have a client do. If they're only telling the trauma story over and over again, they're not giving themselves room to learn about it and to grow and to get past it. Mm -hmm. So again, dreaming seems to play a role in helping individuals learn how to connect trauma memories to other events in their lives, to other memories in a way that allows them to move on, to get past it in, in the jargon of the, of the culture. Uh -huh. Yeah, that was a big light bulb moment for me and something that I, I didn't know or never really the reason why they're not getting over their traumas because they can't enter a stage of sleep that will help them heal and realize and process this experience. And so it's like thinking about you know, break that cycle. I know people are kind of looking at those pieces, but it seems like we should just put this in the forefront of any trauma, you know, trauma work that anyone's doing, but I, I don't know if you've had some you know, thoughts. Well, I mean, one way is to get trauma therapists yeah. 
more aware of the importance of it. Mm -hmm. There are trauma therapies like EMDR, which I know about because my wife is a practitioner with a mostly trauma clientele. And interestingly, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and is famous because Prince Harry is now talking to Oprah about his use of it. But it involves, you know, following a moving finger. It's got the eye movements like in REM sleep. And it's very possible that what that's doing is sort of doing a kickstart, a push start of those REM processes, even while we're awake mm -hmm. and sort of doing a, a, a workaround mm -hmm. for the failure of being able to enter a full REM state when we're asleep. Mm -hmm. So, so in some cases, it's inadequate sleep. In other cases, it's, you know, they're getting good sleep, but their brain just won't let them feel, the brain doesn't feel safe enough to let them sink fully into a REM state. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that we have ideas about solutions for that at this point. Yeah. Once, you know, the awareness is the first step. I have a lot of patients who've had a lot of success with the EMDR, so I'm glad you brought that up. And I hadn't thought about that too, is that the technique. Anything else that you would want to add around what's happening to the limbic system during REM or during dreaming? Anything? So again... You know, I, I mentioned the change in noradrenaline that happens. Serotonin release is also shut off during REM sleep. And we think that might be involved in getting the brain biased towards taking these weak associations and calculating that they're useful. It sort of biases the brain towards saying, oh, that's potentially useful. I'm going to strengthen that connection. Because remember, these are associations that we would never think of when we're awake. So at face value, they're goofy. I mean, it's the bizarreness of dreaming, right? That all these crazy things are put together and you have no idea why. So you sort of want the brain to be biased towards thinking, oh, maybe this is useful. So serotonin is shut off. A region of the prefrontal cortex called dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, a horrible name for anything, is really involved in executive decision-making and in logical reasoning and an impulse inhibition, and that's shut off during REM sleep too, so that your brain is freed to be a little bit irrational, to sort of make choices that it would normally say, no, I, I shouldn't, that's goofy, I'm not going to think about that. So that lets those, those weak associations come forward more. And another thing that happens is that the limbic system, that whole midline system of brain structures, um, is cranked up in REM sleep more active even than it is during waking. So here we have a system that's sort of primed for being emotional. It's primed for being bizarre. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what those dreams look like. Mm -hmm. So all of those pieces seem to be part of an evolved mechanism of getting the brain into a state where it can do this kind of processing. So again, you know, I didn't talk about it in relation to those more basic forms of memory processing. But if we're just taking things we memorize during the day, think French, irregular French verbs, you know, it's your deep stage three non-REM sleep that's important for strengthening those memories. Because all you want to do is strengthen the memory in the exact form that you learned it. But if you're trying to discover patterns, or if you're trying to figure out how to file something away, or if you're trying to get insight into a problem, 
those kinds of tasks seem to correlate with how much REM sleep you get. Mm -hmm. So again, the different stages of sleep serve different functions in terms of memory processing with those sort of more creative aspects of memory processing and dreaming all being optimized for REM sleep. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, you know, with this knowledge and this, you know, understanding, and then also some of the tools, I don't know if you're familiar, but some of them like tracking devices like the Aura Ring or Fitbits or things that are actually giving them quantitative information of how much deep sleep and how much REM sleep they're getting. Do you feel like that's kind of, you know, a huge step forward in getting biomedical understanding? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to have that information. Mm-hmm. But on some level, you know, you, you know, you sort of get that information and you say, oh, what am I going to do with this information? You know, it, it's telling me that I only get half as much REM sleep as the other average person, you know. What can I do about it? And I don't have answers for that. You know, I can't say, well, you know, take this drug, which I would never suggest to help you sleep. Um, it'll give you more REM sleep. So it's, 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 I think the main value of those sleep monitoring devices is they put a check on the line you do to yourself about how much sleep you get. Mm. You know, it's one of those things where if I ask someone, so how much sleep do you get at night? They say, oh, probably, you know, seven and a half, eight hours. I said, oh, okay. And how much sleep did you get last night? And they said, oh, that was a funny night. I, I actually stayed up like watch. I, I binge watched. You know, I probably got five and a half hours of sleep last night. And I say, how about the night before? And they say, okay, okay, I, I get it. I probably don't average seven and a half hours. And, and most of us probably try to convince ourselves that we're getting more sleep than we are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think these devices can be really helpful in showing us how much that's not the case and how much variability we have. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because variability in total sleep time is a real problem. Remember I said you get most of your REM sleep in the last half of your the night. Well, how does your brain know when the last half of the night is? Right? Well, it does that in essence by averaging the last half dozen nights or so. And says, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting, you know, seven hours, seven and a half hours of sleep. I'm going to go heavy into REM sleep after four. Mm-hmm. And then that night, you only get five hours of sleep. And you miss almost all of your REM sleep. Mm-hmm. But don't worry. Your brain says, whoa, okay, we're going to have to change. We're going to have to move our REM sleep earlier. Not so much slow wave sleep, not so much of that deep non-REM sleep early on. We're going to have to do more REM. And then that next night, you get 10 hours of sleep to make up. And your brain's sort of going along saying, okay, more REM sleep, more REM sleep. I wish I'd known this earlier. I would have given you more slow wave sleep. Mm-hmm. It sort of sounds funny, but when we've done studies looking at college students and looking at exam scores, doesn't depend very much on how many hours of sleep you get at night, but it depends a lot on how much variability you get from one night to the next. Mm. The consistency, right? Having a bed. Yeah. Like your mom might have said, right? Having a bedtime routine, right? That's right. That's right. No, this is when you go to bed. You, you don't stay up till two o'clock on, on the weekend and then make it up yeah. some other time. Mm-hmm. And again, with the memory learnings and memory effects, you can't make it up. I mean, if you don't get it that first night, 
mm-hmm. um, you're not going to get the benefits. So, mm-hmm. so that consistency of, of sleep length is something that those sleep devices can also help you monitor. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, it can, you know, it can pick up sleep disorders for you and mm-hmm. give you a hint that you should talk to your doctor about it. Mm-hmm. So, Bob, we have a whole chapter in the book around lucid dreaming. People might not even know what we're talking about when we say lucid dreaming. What, what is lucid dreaming? So, lucid dreaming at its core simply means being aware of the fact that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. I mean, you become lucid, right? You say, oh, I can see, oh, look, this is a dream. And for most people, most of the time, that's as far as they get. Mm-hmm. You know, within 10 or 20 seconds, they either wake themselves up because, wow, that's so exciting. And to become lucid, the, your frontal cortex, which is quieted down while you're sleeping, has to sort of come back online more for you to become lucid. Uh, so when you're lucid, you sort of sit on this knife edge where one side is waking up and the other is slipping back into non-lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. So you forget that you're dreaming and just go back into the dream. And learning to stay on that knife edge is a bit of a talent. And it, it comes with practice for those people who put the time mm-hmm. and energy into it. And when they do, they start to be able to control aspects of their dreaming. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting. They can control what they do. They can fly. They can't really control what other people in their dreams do, which is kind of funny because it's their brain. Right. Right running those other characters in their dream. But as a lucid dreamer, Tony Zadra, who's the co-author of When Brains Dream with me, he loves to see if he can get the other characters in his dreams to do things for him. You know, he says, you know, if I become lucid, I want to ask him, so what do you think of me? What kind of a guy do you think I am? And see if they'll give an answer. What do you think I should do about this problem I have? Mm-hmm. and see if they'll give an answer. It's really hard to get anything back. They're, they're not very cooperative. It's easier to fly than change the scene, mm-hmm. and, which is kind of funny. If you've been to Paris, you can probably close your eyes now and sort of picture yourself on Champs-Élysées and see the Eiffel Tower or see the Arc de Triomphe, whichever one is on the Champs-Élysées. If you're in a dream you and become lucid, you can't just say, oh, Okay, I'm going to be in Paris now. You say that, and you're still where you are. But people who are experienced lucid dreamers have discovered that if you're in a, if you're in your house, if you open the door and walk outside, you can be in Paris. Or if you're already outside, if you walk around the corner where there's a building that you can't see around the corner, you can walk around the corner and be in Paris. Mm-hmm. And other people have discovered if you just stand still and spin around in your dream, mm-hmm. and then stop, you can be in Paris. Mm-hmm. So you can control the scene if your brain has to create a new scene anyhow. Wow. Because you've opened the door and walked outside, you've walked around the corner, you've spun around so that you can't see much of anything about where you are, and then you stop. Now the brain has to create a new background scene, mm-hmm. and it can be Paris. So it's this funny kind of control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you find that there's any benefit to lucid dreaming or anything biologically beneficial that you've seen? Well, so first of all, we don't, nobody spends much time in lucid dreaming. So 
people have asked me, do you think it can be detrimental? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, your brain's supposed to be doing these other things and dreaming is supposed to be working in this sort of automatic way. Do you think you're, you're preventing the brain from doing what it needs to do? I, you know, I doubt that anybody's lucid more than 10 minutes a night and that's out of two hours of REM sleep and probably six hours of dreaming altogether out of an eight-hour night. So I don't worry about that. There's been some evidence that you can instigate some of the memory processing that the brain does anyhow. Mm. So if, if I've taught you a task that you're going to get somewhat better on tomorrow, when you retest, if during the night you become lucid and say, okay, I'm going to really think about that test. Mm. You can show even more improvement the next day. But I think what's most interesting is people who are trying to see if it can be used with individuals who suffer from really severe nightmares Mm -hmm. to help them learn how to control the content of those nightmares. Mm -hmm. So sort of now doing that same kind of imagining, it's kind of funny. You're in a dream, so it's already something that's in your imagination. But in that imagined scenario, you can imagine dreaming about whatever the topic is that tends to be the source of your nightmares, whether it's being chased, whether it's fires, whether it's tall buildings, whether it's insects. You can sort of try, while lucid, to bring that content in and try to gain control over how the dream progresses, how the nightmare would have progressed, except that you sort of short-circuit that process. It's a little bit like what a therapist will do, where they try to make sure that you're grounded and aware of the fact that you're in my office, you know, you're working with me, I'm here supporting you, that that thing you're afraid of, that thing that happened in the past is not going to happen here now, but you can look at that thing that happened. As, as they'll say in uh, an EMDR therapy, they'll say, you can just be a, a passenger on the train watching it go by as the train goes down the tracks and, and not be involved in it. The question is, can we use lucid dreaming to get that same sort of um, dual attention to the fact that you're, you're safe and you're in control and then confront the sources of terror that, are, that, are, that come up in your nightmares? And there's talk about trying to use it in, in that same way with PTSD or or, or trauma in general, even if it hasn't progressed to PTSD. Those questions are still unanswered. Those studies really haven't been done yet. Mm-hmm. So, Bob, is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel we haven't fleshed out around your model or your understanding? We've covered so much. And so I, of course, want to point people to your book, One Brain's Dream. And, you know, I, I'm super curious. Oh, well, I'll let you answer that question first. And then we'll, yeah. So I guess the one thing I'd like to add is, you know, From an evolutionary point of view, it's quite clear that whatever benefits dream give us or dreaming gives us happens in the moment while we're dreaming and isn't dependent on our remembering the dreams at all. That doesn't mean that remembering our dreams can't be fun and useful. Mm -hmm. I like to take the example of the heartbeat. You know, we didn't evolve so that our heart would make a sound. Mm -hmm. It evolved to pump blood. And if you've ever been around a pump, pumps make noise. Mm. But given that it does make noise, cardiologists or your general practitioner can listen to those sounds and learn a lot about how your heart is functioning. Mm. And so in that same way, we can take those dreams that we do remember 
and either just revel in the foolishness or the fun or the excitement or the bizarreness of them, or look at the insights or ideas that they give us when we wake up mm-hmm. and use that productively to, to look and say, well, no, this seems to be what my brain is thinking about. You know, how, what does that tell me about myself? How come I'm always dreaming mm-hmm. about this ex-girlfriend who I couldn't care less about? <laughs> Something doesn't quite fit there. I mean, doesn't mean it was a mistake to break up, but it says that my brain is still spending a lot of time on that, and maybe I should too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get real insights from our dreams. I mean, I tell people, Never quit a job, never get divorced because of a dream, but maybe the dream suggests that you should take a look at them mm-hmm. from yeah. your waking state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you all write about the dream, uh, dream incubation technique. So sleep onset mm-hmm. is a very curious time because the dreams there tend to be very short and very focused and very strongly connected to what was going on in your mind immediately before you fell asleep. So you can think about things that you would like your brain to process. And as you're falling asleep, and there's a decent chance that when you fall asleep, your brain will dream about that. And it can dream about it in quite bizarre ways. And people like Thomas Edison and Salvador Dali have written explicitly about using this technique. The trick is, you have to wake up and remember the dream. And so they both developed techniques of sitting in armchairs and holding a fork in Thomas Edison's case or, or a, a key, a big old key in Salvador Dali's case over a tin pan. And then as they fall asleep, the muscles in their hand relax and the key or the, or the spoon falls and hits the plate and wakes them up. Well, Adam Horowitz who's a student at MIT in their media lab, which is a place of crazy innovation, Mm -hmm. has developed a device called Dormio. Mm -hmm. Dormio is the Latin word for I dream, Mm -hmm. which involves a glove that you wear and an app on your phone. And the glove detects when you fall asleep. And then the app wakes you up, Mm -hmm. calls to you, talks to you, wakes you up, and then you report what you were dreaming and the app records it. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And then the app says, okay, remember you were thinking about moving to Iowa. Mm-hmm. So think about moving to Iowa and go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it'll do this, you know, a half dozen times in the first half hour of your night. And it'll record all of your little dreamlets, these short dreams that you have. And then in the morning you download them. And you've got some insights into that problem. That's a, that's a really wonder, wonderful um, way to research you know, this process, you know. So Yes. Now, there's a downside to that, it turns out. Uh-huh. Because evil corporate America has read our paper uh-huh. and Coors Beer uh-huh. for the Super Bowl uh-huh. tried to get people to sign on to what they called an experiment, which was really an advertising gimmick where they would get a coupon for 50% off on a 12-pack of beer if they would, if the person would agree to watch some videos about Coors beer with music in the background and then play the soundtrack while they were asleep. 
Uh-oh. And the soundtrack was supposed to reactivate the memories of those film clips and without them ever saying so, act on the brain to convince it to buy Coors beer. Oh, wow. wow. And Adam Horowitz, who is the person who, who came up with this, has been getting more and more phone calls and emails from big corporations saying, can you help us set this up? Wow. Yeah. To the point that a, a group of us have, have just today put on the internet a sort of a manifesto calling for the banning of this type of advertising. Mm. And Science Magazine is going to have an article this coming Monday, which will be the 7th, um, talking about this problem. And we're aiming to talk to legislators about actually getting a ban on dream incubation advertisement. Mm. It's interesting, the Federal Trade Commission has banned subliminal advertising Mm-hmm. on the grounds that it's deceptive practices, that mm-hmm. basically they're tricking people into thinking things without them even knowing that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to get a similar ban on, on this dream incubation advertising. Like all good ideas, there's mm-hmm. a potential dark side. Yeah. And so, well, I'm glad you guys have the foresight and the, you know, the insight to... Uh, share your concerns um, and hopefully put a stop to them before go anywhere. Um, because, yeah, I mean, we have so right. much information coming at us, right? We need to have our sleepy, sacred time, right? That we can be in our own, in our own consciousness, right? Right. If we can't have our, our sleep time to ourselves, we've got nothing left. <laughs> Very but true. At the same time, it's important, it's important to say that the stream incubation technique, you know, is not only known to be valuable for creativity but again you know in terms of of dealing with depression in terms of dealing with with trauma it might be a really powerful tool if if used appropriately and ethically Mm -hmm. so i think that's a really exciting direction Mm -hmm. that that dream research is going yeah really yeah no thank you for sharing that and i was going to end on is if there's any other exciting points of research or anything that your lab's doing that you're we're curious about that you just wanted to share with the audience. No, I think the dream incubation yeah. is the big stuff now. Other groups are doing stuff with lucid dreaming where they're working on two-way communication mm. during dreams where yeah. they've gotten as far as being able to take people who... So when you're in REM sleep, your body is paralyzed. Mm. You can't move. But you can move your eyes, obviously, for the rapid eye movements. So Steve LaBerge, oh, back in the 1900s, came up with this technique for lucid dreamers to signal out to a researcher that they have become lucid by doing eye movements, left, right, left, right, left, right. And you can see it in the recording, and you can say, ah, right then he became lucid. Mm-hmm. So researchers are now using that signaling out to actually ask dreamers questions mm. when they're lucid so the subject becomes lucid they signal with their eyes that they're lucid and then they can ask them questions they can literally speak questions to them and in the early studies it's been things like what is six minus three mm. and then the dreamer signals out with three left right eye movements mm. or they can be told ahead of time that one means one eye movement pair 
means yes and two means no. And they can ask them questions like, do you speak Spanish? And get them to signal out one or two. And we really don't know how far they can push this. Mm -hmm. um, but the thoughts are that they can use this technique now to really explore what the brain and what the dreaming brain is able to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like if Bill is taller than Tom, can Tom be taller than Bill? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a very simple logic question. You know, the answer is no. But can a dreaming brain figure that out? Mm -hmm. Right? So what kind of associations, what kind of logical questions, what kind of cognitive abilities are available to the dreaming brain? And what kind of emotional processing mm -hmm. uh, can be done by the emotional brain, by the, by the dreaming brain? Mm -hmm. So I think that's, an, that's another area of research that's really opening up now that people are really excited about for dream research. Oh. Well, no, thank you for sharing that insight and you know, thank you for your time today podcast and I've learned so much and yeah, my curiosity is peaked in many different areas, how I can support my community and my patients to integrate this information, especially around the trauma work. I think that this is a mm -hmm. big piece. Again, thank you so much. It's uh, really a pleasure getting to know you and I appreciate your time today. And I'd love for my audience to know more about where they can find more about your research. The book, When Brains Dreams, talks both about all of my research looking at sleep and memory and the dream research. And I would give them sort of links to everything. The book came out in January, so it's pretty up to date. And if you have questions, the simplest thing to do is just sleep on it. <laughs> love that. Love that. I'm going to teach my daughter that. So, um, well, again, thank you so much, Bob, for your time. And thank you again for being on the podcast. You're welcome. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Bob Stickold. Please check out his book, One Brain's Dream. And if you want to learn more about Somnium and the educational talks that we're doing about sleep, please check out my website and link in the show notes. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day.